Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Professor Emeritus Galia Golan. Professor Emeritus Golan is a leading Israeli peace activist for many decades, having co-founded and served in the leadership of Peace Now and a number of women's local and international peace groups. Currently, she's a leading member of Combatant for Peace. Galia, if I may, <laughs> thank you for um, joining us today and talking to us about your journey toward um, activism. And I was wondering if you could start out by talking a little bit about how did you become to identify as a peace activist? When did that happen? Actually, that's a pretty good question because I immigrated from the United States to Israel in 1966. I knew almost nothing about the conflict except you know, the movies like Exodus and so on. Growing up in the United States in the 1950s, I had experienced anti-Semitism but I had a very good job in Washington and I had a very nice life, but I visited Israel a couple of times in the early 60s. And I decided to immigrate mainly because as a secular, totally secular Jew, I didn't feel, I didn't feel a sort of Jewish identification in America because I didn't go to synagogue. Uh, I felt a part of a Jewish people. I guess because I'd lived and studied in Europe a number of years where Jews did feel pretty much a part of a people, that, that spoke to me. But when I immigrated, I knew almost nothing. And I immigrated in 1966, a year before the Six Day War broke out. I had good friends at a kibbutz right on bordering on the Gaza Strip. And I lived in Jerusalem. So we didn't expect the war to take place in Jerusalem. So I went to Nachal Oz, to this kibbutz, as a volunteer. I figured there, a lot of them would be called up in the reserves and they could use more people working. So I was in the war in a trench. I handled a field telephone, although I didn't speak very much Hebrew. And um, I experienced the war there. We were under fire uh, from Gaza, the army, went out from Gaza to conquer the Gaza Strip. And after the war, I went back to Jerusalem. The husband of a friend of mine, or actually a friend of mine had been killed in the war. But other than that, my experience was in the kibbutz. But the feeling at the time, right after the war, and we were told by the government that now we had bargaining chips, and we were gonna give back the territories that were taken in the war, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, all of Jerusalem, in exchange for peace. And the feeling really was that this was gonna happen. So we sort of ran around, I know I did with my friends, looking at the occupied territories, Jericho, Bethlehem, because we were convinced they were gonna be given back very soon, except that didn't happen. And a few months later, Israel, or at least I became aware of the fact that Israel began building settlements. And my very first political act in Israel was to sign a petition against the building of settlements in the territories for a very sort of simplistic uh, reason. I said, you know, if we build 
settlements, how are we going to give it back? Because the belief really was that we're going to give these territories back for peace. So that was my first political act. And very gradually, very gradually, I began to understand that Israel had no intention of going any further, it was building settlements. And I had to give a course at the Hebrew University on conflicts, uh, international conflicts. And one of the conflicts was Israel, or the founding of the state of Israel is an international conflict. So I began reading and I began learning more about the history of the conflict. And I began to understand the conflict a little bit more. And combining that slightly greater understanding with this business of the settlements, which seemed to me to be illogical, I became more aware of what was going on. And ultimately, I became active. I think the first thing was to go to a demonstration against the settlements. The demonstration was organized by a left-wing party to which I didn't belong, my pop. I, I think my views were very much, or at least I thought they were very much like the Labour Party, that clearly we were gonna give up land for peace because that was their slogan. And I sort of was on the fringes of a peace movement that got started about then. But my real activism began really after I got married in 1972. And my husband and I, he was an immigrant from Australia and he was also an officer, a doctor in the reserves. Uh, he and I began going to demonstrations that were organized by the left wing in Israel. And, um, I became increasingly involved out of this, as I said, very simple idea that you don't build settlements and move people to live there if you're planning to give it up in exchange for peace. Uh, and in 1977, I voted for the Labour Party and then I was part of a group of people from the Hebrew University mainly who demonstratively joined the Labour Party uh, as, a, as a group to push for a more moderate peace or dovish policy. And that's really when I became most active. A year later in 78, Peace Now was created. And my husband and I were among the very first people to join and we became very active. I was asked to give a talk at a very small demonstration and we both became extremely active. And that was really my beginning. The more I learned about the conflict, the more active I became in the peace movement. But that really is my trajectory. I've been learning ever since. I mean, all every day more things are published and I learn more and I'm not happy about it. I have no idea if I had known in 1966 what I know today, I have no idea if I would have immigrated. I really don't know. I'm certainly not happy with the way things are today or the way they have been since 1967. But on the other hand, I've researched this and written a number of books and I became convinced that very early on, we could have reached a peace agreement, certainly with Jordan. And that it's the territories, the occupation and this continued policy of Israeli governments, the labor government, the Likud, it didn't matter who was in power, but this continued policy of 
holding on to the territories, even when there were peace initiatives, peace offers from Sadat, for example, the desire to hold on to the territories was greater than the desire for peace. Now, frankly, I think in the early years, and I give them the benefit of the doubt, I think that labor leaders like Golda Meir and Eshkol, maybe even Dayan, were simply mistrustful. They simply, and I, and I believe this, they did not believe that any Arab state would make peace with Israel. And so they didn't believe any of the peace offers. Certainly when Sadat made his peace offer in 1971, Israel, the Israeli leadership simply didn't believe it. And I, I give them the benefit of the doubt, given their history and so on. I think it was mistrust. But I'm not so sure I excuse subsequent leaders because there's so many cases when there were initiatives and possibilities to reach an agreement and the Israeli leadership said very clearly, we won't give up the territories. Now, as I say, I think in the early years, it was mistrust. They had security considerations, even in Sinai, but certainly in the West Bank. And they said these things. And I think in the early years, they believed that we have to hold on to the West Bank because even if Jordan wants peace, the Iraqi army will come through and attack us. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons. And I think some of them were not just excuses. As I say, I give them the benefit of the doubt. But in, in time, it became very clear that whether it was for security reasons or ideology or fear or mistrust, whatever the reason, Israeli governments, one after another, said very clearly they would not give up the territories. And I've been fighting it ever since I began to understand that. I've certainly written about, and I'm very confident Having gone through archives, the American archives, the Israeli archives, I've, I've seen that there were opportunities for peace. And because Israel was not willing and still is not willing to give up the occupied territories, it doesn't happen. I think a lot of the initiatives from the Arabs were, were, were sincere. Certainly the Jordanians were sincere. The Egyptians were sincere. And um, I think actually even giving up the Sinai in exchange for peace with Egypt was done by Menachem Begin from the Likud when he was prime minister in order to keep the West Bank. And this is where ideology came in. Whereas I think with labor, it really was a sort of security concept and mistrust and so on. I, I believe that for the Likud and for Begin, it was ideology. It's all ours. Historically, it's ours. And it was this desire to hold on to the West Bank in East Jerusalem for ideological reasons. And viewing this as more important than making peace. And I, I'm convinced, and I have researched this very thoroughly, that I, I'm absolutely convinced that we missed opportunities Certainly the greatest opportunity, well, I mean, it's hard to say what was the greatest opportunity. I mean, Sadat was willing to make peace with the Yaring Initiative uh, in, in 1971. Where Egypt said, yes, okay, peace in exchange if you 
withdrawal from the occupied territories. But Israel refused. And I, and I can take this all the way over the years, time and time again. The interesting thing is when Sadat made his peace initiatives, even in 1973, the beginning of 1973, the Israeli leadership said, and it's actually there in the minutes of the government meeting, they said, okay, here's a peace initiative with international guarantees, but we're not willing to give up the territories. I mean, they said it absolutely clearly. And they knew at the time that there were preparations, Egyptian preparations for war. And they, they went ahead and refused. And as I say, by 1977, when the Likud came to power as a right-wing government, it had this ideological motivation much greater than the security argument or the mistrust. It became ideology. It's ours. It's always ours. It was meant to be ours. And that's it. And it hasn't changed really since 1977 until Robin. Now, we don't know exactly how far Rabin was willing to go. And there are definitely signs that he wanted some kind of an autonomy rather than a Palestinian state next to Israel. But the truth is in 1988, the PLO abandoned its zero sum position of wanting all of Palestine and went for the two-state solution. And I think Rabin was aware of that. I think a lot of things that motivated Rabin was a change in the international system. Soviet Union had collapsed in 85, or slightly after, and was no longer backing the PLO. The PLO had supported Saddam Hussein in the first Iraq war. So that cost them dearly with Saudi Arabia, their financial backers. They were weakened, and I think Rabin saw an opportunity. Here you had a new PLO policy. You had a new international situation, no more Soviet Union backing the PLO. And he was also very concerned, and there are many signs of this about Iran getting a bomb, uh, the rise of Islamism, radical Islam. And I think he was willing, I think he wanted to take Israel out of this whole Middle Eastern formula. How far he was willing to go? Well, look, I was in the Labour Party. Rabin was in the, the hawkish wing. I was in the dovish wing of Shimon Peres. But I think Rabin underwent a change. And I think that's uh, all to his credit. And there were other right-wing people who underwent changes. In the case of Rabin, he saw the world was changing. He said this in his speeches. The world is changing. The region is changing. And I think he understood that the PLO had changed. So I think there was a push-pull thing there. The push was his concern over Iran and Islamism. The pull was the changes that had been taking place. And the Israeli public was also, in terms of public opinion, more willing to make compromises. The opinion polls show this. So this is what was behind Oslo, in my opinion. How far he intended to go, we don't know, because just before he was assassinated, he gave a speech in which he said, less than a state. And I think he was attracted to the idea of autonomy. I think that's what he had in mind. But be that as it may, here we are. And we haven't had a government since that's willing to go beyond autonomy. 
I'm not sure that's where the public is. The public varies, the opinion polls vary. There was tremendous support for Oslo and the two-state solution for a long time, but after the assassination and terrorist attacks by the Islamic movement, the Islamic Jihad and Hamas, uh, sympathy and support for the two-state solution went down. But I, I frankly believe that if the government, any government in Israel, were to go for, to make a peace agreement with the Palestinians on the basis of two states, with maybe international guarantees, I think the public would go along with it. And just to conclude, I think the closest we came to this was under Olmert. Olmert was a pragmatist. He was another right-wing leader from the Likud who understood, I believe, like Rabin, that if we continue to occupy the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, we as Jews would be outnumbered by Palestinians and there would be pressure, whether from the international community or the local Palestinians for a binational state, one person, one vote, that people would say that this it's untenable. You cannot hold millions of people under occupation with no political rights. You can't do this indefinitely. And I think this is what Olmert understood. He said it. And he moved. I think it was this sort of what we call the demographic argument. But he really sincerely, I believe, tried to make peace. He uh, invited uh, Abu Mazen to meet. And I think they came very close to working out an agreement. We know how close they came. We know what they agreed on and what they didn't agree on. And both of them have said that they had, to, they had further to go on the territorial question, on the refugee question, but they had agreed on security, that there would be an international force in the, West, in the Jordan Rift Valley on that border between the Palestinian state and Jordan. That was the only thing they really agreed on officially. But they were very close on a lot of other issues. And unfortunately, Olmert was being accused of corruption and he had to resign. And then he was ultimately put on trial and he went to jail. And there we are. It was unfortunate. I think if we go back, I think Barak was sincere in trying to reach an agreement. He just was not willing to go as far as it was needed. He never really made what was, in my opinion, an offer that the Palestinians could have accepted. But Omert and Abu Mazen came very close. They, became, they came very close, and if we could get back to that, we could have an agreement. But we have a government today that's led by a religious right-wing party, totally dedicated and dictated to by ideology for religious reasons. So I expect nothing from this government. And in fact, uh, Bennett, Prime Minister Bennett, has said very clearly he has no intention of negotiating. He certainly doesn't support the idea of a Palestinian state next to the state of Israel. And I think we have wasted a number of opportunities where the PLO underwent tremendous changes in agreeing, okay, a state only what they call a mini state in the occupied territories next to the state of Israel, except resolution 242, which talks about respecting the 
rights of both and the secure and recognized borders of both Palestine and Israel. We've wasted these opportunities. I think they're still there, but Palestinian public opinion changes, Australia, Israeli public opinion changes, and we have a government that offers us no hope whatsoever. So I'm not exactly encouraged. I certainly continue to be a peace activist because I, can't, I couldn't get up in the morning and not try to change things. And I believe they can be changed. I mean, that's really what drives me is that I believe that change is there, it's possible. And what we need to get it is a new Israeli government. But the Israeli electorate's not with us. We're, we're a very small minority. The left wing is a very small minority. The public totally ignores the occupation. They don't care. And uh, in, in combatants for peace, we're a joint Israeli and Palestinian movement which is really very important. And we go out there, I don't go as much today because I'm afraid of the settlers and I can't run away from tear gas. So I don't go as often as I don't go at all where I used to go all the time, but the movement is out there all the time and we meet and you've got to understand that in combatants for peace, the Israelis are all past uh, military people. Mm -hmm. And the Palestinians are all past fighters, you call them terrorists, whatever you want to call them. On both sides, they were combatants. And on both sides, they came to the conclusion and they came together on the basis of opposition to the occupation through nonviolence. And they advocate, we advocate, mm -hmm. we teach, and we practice nonviolence. But the settlers are violent and the army is often violent. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's very hard to say how much we can do, but we try. Yeah, no. By the way, I want to mention, I want to add that the Israeli peace camp is really a very interesting phenomenon. I mean, I, I admit that it's small, but look at how many groups there are. There's breaking the peace, who, uh, excuse me, breaking the silence, who are soldiers who come out of active duty and break the silence and they talk about what they've seen. They're a wonderful group. And Beth Selim that talks about monitors human rights abuses by the Israeli army in the occupied territories. Doctors for human rights, rabbis for human rights, Peace Now, which continues, of course. There are so many of these groups. And I think that's wonderful. And I want to add one more thing to that. We have young people coming into these groups. And that's my hope. They come out of the army, because it's a, a conscript army. They come out of the army and they join these groups. Now, they're not the majority. Okay, they're not the majority. But at least I can say we have young people coming, young people who have served in the occupied territories. They see what it's like. And they want to, as, as our slogan in Combatants for Peace, they want to say there is another way. And I firmly believe there is. I I am absolutely convinced that peace is possible. I don't know that it's possible with Hamas. They're very clear that they don't want to make peace with Israel. They want something of a, maybe a, a short-term truce. But the PLO is still the strongest force. The Fatah is still the strongest party. And they advocate a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. And Even we have a blueprint out there. We know that you know that's possible.
even though the PLO, um, you know, has been critiqued a lot from Palestinian as being corrupt, um, as not really representing the, you know, the domestic as well as the, the, the national aspirations of uh, Palestinians on the ground. So, I mean, I don't know how legitimate they are right now with everything, you know, Abbas has been there for a long, long time, right? No elections. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. We know that there's a lot of disillusionment amongst the Palestinian public and they, they don't see Abu Mazen as a legitimate leader anymore because he's rejected elections and he's not exactly young. On the other hand, I don't think that they have rejected Fatah as such. And I don't think they've rejected the idea of trying to reach a peace agreement. The, the problem is, and this is our fault, the problem is that the PLO opted, certainly under Abu Mazen, opted for nonviolence. After the second intifada, it was a clear policy by the PLO, which represents the Palestinian people, more today than Hamas does. Opted for nonviolence, opted for negotiations. Al-Afad opted for negotiations. The negotiations hasn't brought them anything. So I can certainly understand the frustration, but I don't think if we look at the polls that are conducted by Khalil Shikaki, who runs these regular polls from Ramallah and he interviews a lot of people, uh, there still is greater support for Fatah than there is for Hamas, thank goodness. And there is still support, although it goes down for the two state solution. And I, I think that the Palestinian public, like the Israeli public, if there were an agreement and each public believed that there was going to be peace between us, in the case of the Palestinians, an independent Palestinian state, in the case of the Israelis, an end of the conflict with some kind of agreed, as the Palestinians have said, an agreed upon arrangement regarding the refugees, I think both publics would accept it. My, to my great regret, the Israeli public and the government ignored the Arab Peace Initiative of 2002. But the point is that there was, aside from saying, yes, withdraw from the occupied territories, two-state solution, East Jerusalem was the capital of the Palestinian state, West Jerusalem, capital of Israel. What people needed to hear more was the change that took place in the refugee issue. Because the Arab, the Arab Peace Initiative said that there would be a just but agreed upon solution of the, of the refugee issue. The person who wrote this was the Jordanian foreign minister who had once been, he was Jordan's first ambassador to Israel. And he understood what Israelis needed to hear because the Israeli fear about being flooded by 3 million, 4 million refugees and then pushed into the sand, that's a very real fear. And so the, the, the Arab Peace Initiative addressed this because that's really the only thing that was new in it is everything else is the withdrawal and two states and so on. But the only new formula in there was an agreed upon, nobody is going to force an agreement on the Palestinian, on the refugee issue on Israel. And of course, then the bottom of the our peace initiative is end of conflict and peace. I think that 
1988 PLO recognition and acceptance of the two-state solution and the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative were all we needed. That's all we needed. Uh, as uh, there's a, an Israeli uh, specialist on the, on the Palestinian issue, works for the Shabak, Israeli security. And he said, you know, we won the Arab-Israeli conflict in 1988 and certainly in 2002. They gave us basically what we want. We want recognition of the state of Israel in our borders up to 1967. They gave us this two-state solution. And then on these issues like the refugee issue, they, which is critical, they also understood where we are. Unfortunately, we haven't had a government that says yes to this. But I do believe that if we could get a government that would say yes, I think the public would go along. Now, I recently co-edited a book on spoilers, and we know there are spoilers out there, Israeli spoilers, settlers mainly. But you know, an interesting thing in that book we found, one of the chapters was, a, it was an experiment that was run by social psych an Israeli social psychologist and an Israeli political scientist, academics from the Interdisciplinary Center. And they did a series of experiments. And they found that in a situation where settlements have to be evacuated in order to have a peace agreement, they found that the settlers would accept an agreement and evacuation of some settlements if the government approved it. And this in, in Hebrew is called mamlachtiyut. If the government says it, people are generally willing to accept it. In this case, the experiment was on settlers. And uh, I, I can't say that it would go easily. I can't say there wouldn't be battles. And I, I can't say with 100% assurance that it would work, that everybody would accept it and so on. But I think that public opinion on both sides would go for it. And then we would have to deal with the spoilers on both sides. I mean, Hamas wouldn't go for it and the settlers wouldn't for the most part. But I think a solution is out there. We know what it looks like. We got very, very close under Ulmer who unfortunately was corrupt and wound up going to jail before he could do anything. I'm not sure we have a leader in any of the parties today that has enough strength to come to power and do it. Well, the opposite, we've got a religious right wing and mind you, the government today is to the right of Netanyahu. This is a religious right wing leadership. Now, it has a broad coalition, and even my own party, Merits, is in the coalition. The Arab parties are in their coalition, but that's not what makes policy. I personally believe we need outside pressure. I don't believe that BDS is good work. I mean, it's a nonviolent method, but I think that BDS just sort of creates a rally around the flagpole reaction amongst Israelis. It's very easy to say they're all anti-Semites, they hate us, they want to destroy the state of Israel. I don't think BDS is the way to go. I think American pressure and EU pressure, government pressure from both sides, from both the Americans and the EU, I really think that's the way to go. 
The United Nations Security Council passed Resolution 2334, which calls on member states to distinguish between the state of Israel and the areas occupied by Israel. And if we just had that, Ben and Jerry's came along and I think they did the right thing and they got a lot of attention and I buy Ben and Jerry's even though it's too rich, the rich too rich for me. But that's the point. I think the biggest problem though is that the Israeli public ignores the occupation and it's easy to just continue the way we are. And so we don't have enough support to change the government and bring in a government that would make the difference that we need. So I, um, I don't wanna take more, a lot of your time. I wanna to move to a couple more questions um, more directed to activism. So how do you think your feminism and peace work intersect and help you navigate the challenges of being an activist? living in Israel, a Jewish activist living in Israel? Well, you know, I used to be asked a lot about feminism and peace. And for a long time, I didn't really see the connections. I was an active feminist and I was a peace tech and I didn't see the combination. But feminism is about power relations. That's the essence of feminism, it's power relations. And once you become aware and you see power relations as a key to looking at society, I think it's pretty easy to move from there to becoming active on the peace issue because what is the conflict all about except power relations? Uh, I don't expect, and I know not all feminists are in the peace camp and not certainly not all people in the peace camp are feminists. I do see a connection and for me, it's very easy. Uh, as it was for the early feminists who were pacifists, World War I. But I know most people don't see that connection. But for me, there's no contradiction, quite the contrary, I think it's definitely there. In Combatants for Peace, we have a women's movement, Palestinian and Israeli women, but it's part of Combatants for Peace. Palestinians and Israelis working together, whether they're young people working together or women working together, uh, former fighters working together. And there is an issue that I want to mention, which we had many times in our women's peace groups outside of Combatants for Peace, the Jerusalem Link and the International Commission for Just Peace in the Middle East, Israeli women, Jewish women, and also Arab Israelis, not many, uh, and Palestinian women. And one of the problems that we had certainly was asymmetry. We were occupiers, they were under occupation. And while we were all feminists, and we were, still the Palestinian women were under a great deal of pressure from their own communities not to prefer sisterhood or feminism over nationalism. We didn't have such a problem because we were totally ignored in Israel. <laughs> Israeli men are much more chauvinist, I found, oddly enough, than Palestinian. And that's another issue, by the way. But we didn't have the problem because nobody paid any attention to us. We weren't important, we were women. But on the Palestinian side, you had some very important women, highly respected women, 
and that I found amongst Palestinian men, highly respected women like Hanana Shawi and others, Zahira Kamal, and they were under tremendous pressure, very open and, and explicit. Don't put your sisterhood, your feminist uh, activities or goals above your nationalist ones. And so we found it, ultimately found it very hard to work together and ultimately we fell apart. I don't think that was the only thing. We weren't willing to go along with a lot of things that Palestinian women wanted us to do. We thought we should be able to speak with one voice. And another lesson I learned from this, because I was in mixed groups of men and women, Israelis and Palestinians, they never demanded we speak in one voice, but the Palestinian women needed us to be, speak in one voice, and we couldn't. So there were a lot of problems, and I've actually written about this, but there is this issue. I think that there is a bridge through feminism, but I know that it's uh, it won't work. I mean, the nationalist issue has to be up there first and foremost which is okay with me because I'm a peace activist and I belong to groups that are both men and women. But I understand the problems. So at this point in time, I'm not sure I know of any women's peace groups that are joint. Women waging peace is an Israeli group. There are Palestinian citizens of Israel in that group, but that's a group that won't use the word occupation. So what does that interest me? They won't use the word occupation because they don't they want because they want to attract the center of the Israeli public. Well, that's a tactical consideration. It's not mine. And if you can't say the word occupation, then well, I'm not there. I go sometimes to their activities, but they can't be a joint, truly joint Palestinian-Israeli movement. If they don't use the term occupation, whatever. <laughs> so, so that's sort of how I see that whole issue. And then my final question: um, What would be your advice for younger activists, maybe Jewish activists who are in Israel and just starting to deal with these issues, with kind of, you know, promoting for peace, for um, ways that we could live together peacefully? And you know, not only a peaceful situation, but a just uh, solution to the, uh, the violence on the ground. First of all, I think, I think people have to be better informed. I was shocked to see how people in the peace movement didn't know very much about the history. <laughs> I can tell you, they don't know what areas A, B, and C are, that these were temporary areas that was meant, meant temporarily for C to become B and B to become A. They don't know the history of the conflict. Now, I will say for combatants, we did a Nakba, we do a, a memorial every year, a joint memorial, Palestinians and Israelis for people lost, killed in the, in the conflict. But we also do a Nakba event a few weeks later in which we do it the same way. We have people talk about what happened to their families and their villages and so on. I think Israelis need to learn that a little bit more. I think Israelis have to get to know Palestinians. And it's, it's twofold. I mean, what people have to know when they come, it, when they're in the army, sometimes they learn. Because 
there. But if they don't, when they come out of the army, they certainly have to learn what's going on in the occupied territories. They have to come and see for themselves what's going on. And I think it doesn't hurt to learn, study. We, we, have a, uh, we have a course that we give to young people who come as they come out of the army, six week course of lectures on the conflict, history of the conflict and so on. I think it's extremely important that they learn about these things. I think these are the two key things of learning more and meeting Palestinians, knowing what's going on, talking to Palestinians, going to see what's going on in, in, in the occupied territories. I mean, even East Jerusalem, you don't have to go very far. I think these are critical things. Now, there are a lot of movements out there. You can choose what suits you, which is great. I think that's terrific. As I mentioned before, there's bit Salem and there's breaking the silence and there's um, rabbis for human rights, there's combatants for peace, there's peace now, there's Tayush. There's so many groups out there. I happen to think combatants for peace is ideal because it's a joint Israeli-Palestinian movement where we can go and show Palestinians that peace is possible. And we try to bring Israelis into the occupied territories to say, yeah, you can, you can get along. And I firmly believe this. Now, I'm not, I'm not all that naive that I think that all Palestinians are going to put down their hatred or get over their hatred for us, or that all Israelis are going to love the other side. But I do believe, as I said before, that if we could get a leadership that would make an agreement, I think we could handle the spoilers, mainly the settlers. And I think there would be support. But Frankly, working with Palestinians who believe the same thing that I believe encourages me. I mean, I, I mean, I say it very frankly, it gives me much greater confidence to work with Palestinians. Now, they are also under pressure, the so-called anti-normalization. Don't work with Israelis as if everything were normal. And they are under pressure. I know they are. And yet they continue to work with us openly, demonstrating or going and building a playground that's been destroyed by the army or whatever it might be, our recent water campaign. I believe that these things, actually, I think they're also important because I think they show local people that things are possible, that not everyone is Hamas and not everyone is a settler and not everyone is, is opposed. It's a long haul. It's a long haul. You don't go into this thinking tomorrow we're going to have peace. But look, I was in the Labour Party and I was in the camp opposing Rabin. I would never have thought that Rabin or Omerk from a you know, history of Chavut and the Likud party, Zipilivni, I would never have thought that these people would be willing to sit down and talk. So you never know. But I must say that I've come to the conclusion that we are quite weak and we need outside help. I don't think it's BDS. I think American pressure, EU pressure, I think that's important. And we bring diplomats to see what's going on. And we know it works. We in combatants, for example, took up the cause of Khan al-Akhman. It's a Bedouin encampment. It keeps being moved by the government in the West Bank. And they wanted to take it down altogether. And they ordered evacuation. And we went out there and we stayed there. People, Our people slept over. And we stayed and we stayed and we stayed. And we made a big fuss about it. And people started coming. And when the EU diplomats came, 
Well, all of a sudden the Israeli government was a little more careful and Khan al-Akhmar was still there. So I believe that outside attention can make a difference. And I think it's important to try to get outside attention. Okay, thank you very much, Gadia. Um, that was a very informative you know, talk. I think a lot of our listeners will um, learn a lot from your work and your research. I just want to give you a minute to add anything before we end. Um, I put a plug for my most recent book, which is uh, Israeli Peacemaking Since 1967. <clears throat> but the important part is the subtitle, Factors Behind the Breakthroughs and Failures. I really think it's important to go back and look at what's happened. And there's also a book by Elie Poudet, who's from Hebrew University, on missed opportunities. We were writing our books at the same time and we were in touch. Between these two books, you can see, I believe, where it was possible. And it was possible. It is still possible, but we need a leadership that will do it. And I guess it, it will take a change in the PLO leadership, not because Abbas is opposed. I think he's very much in favor. He was definitely in favor of Oslo for the right reasons. He's in favor of nonviolence. And like Al-Afadi, who's in favor of negotiations. But you need, they're going to need, I assume, someone that has greater trust from the population. And we need a leadership that's going to say, we need peace. So there we are. Okay, thank you, Gadia, very much. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, hopefully, I'll see you in person at some point. <laughs> <laughs> no, have fun. It was nice to see you. Bye-bye.